Hi, I'm Amy Porter. Some of you know me as a flutist and a classical musician, others as a professor, and some of you know me as a publisher and arranger. I'm a stepmom, I'm a business owner, and I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. And this is my podcast. My core mission as an entrepreneur is to appreciate what I have around me. And then I try and see as clearly as possible how I can help. So let's talk. Let's share information. Let's laugh and sometimes cry over the things that we have to work through in life and in music, in business and family and relationships. Come on into my Porter Flute pod. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod, episode 13. It's our friend cast, and we're here with innovator, creator, problem solver, and dot connector, Delany West. You know how sometimes you just want to talk to those people who keep it real? Well, that's Delany for me. She's guided me for over seven years just as a friend. And she and I today are going to talk about the black and white female experience, relationships, Black Lives Matter. And I'm going to be quoting from a book I'm rereading, Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. It's on the New York Times bestseller list, so you don't have to look very hard to find it. I'm also featuring From the Vault, my recording from 2003 with the University of Michigan Symphony Orchestra and Kenneth Kiesler conducting William Bolcom's Lyric Concerto for Flute and Orchestra. And guess what? It's being re-released this month. So I'm so excited to share snippets of it for you. I'm in the podcast with Alan J. Tomasetti and Justine Sedke as my co-producers. And we're so glad you're here. Welcome to my podcast, Delany West. Thank you, Amy Porter. I, I was excited when you told me that you were doing this and really glad to, to, to be a guest. I was so inspired by the way you connected me with someone else who had such an impact on my life. And I keep coming back to you as a mm-hmm. source for connection. Now, I also want to talk about the female connection. I want mm-hmm. to talk about the black female and white female connection. I want to talk to you today because I feel like you're one of the more honest people in my life. And every time I do see you, it's always with friends. And then when I get to talk to you, it, we just have, we can't stop talking. We have so much fun. So yes. you're a creative and you make things like, tell us right. what you do. So that's so funny. I always feel like I struggle with telling people well, describing people what I do because I never want to limit um, what I can do. And 
And because I know that I've been in a a position to deliver on a lot of different things, that by saying I'm this one thing, say I'm I'm a designer or I'm a developer or I'm a marketer, people tend to want to give you a title, right? And assign you this thing so they know what box to put you in, right? Like people love to do that. Even me, right? What do you do? But I find out creative work for what I've actually done for 20 plus years. I can't put myself in a box because if my company needed X, it was always problem solve your way to give them what they need. You know, it was creative problem solving. You know, hey, we want to be in the scissors business. Well, go find a scissor manufacturer. Do the research, figure out how to make the best darn pair of scissors you can. And and to do that, my skill sets are design, understanding how to make something. So you got an idea for a widget, right? You have this vision, you know what it looks like. Well, how do you make this thing? How how does it become a a vision? How does it go from a thought, a vision, or a dream to this real thing? So that's what I do. I take, I help people um, execute their creative ideas. So from widget to being able to walk into a Target and buy that thing. And I would be awful if I said, well, I only do stationary or I only do consumer electronics. It's no, you know, I can do it all. So to kind of give you a a short answer, um, I think I gave it as part of my pitch. I help people and brands, you know, execute their creative ideas. And so that could be an event, you know, that could be um, a thing. It could be um, a creative marketing strategy for your brand. But when I met when I when I met you, I had been doing creative leadership for Faber Castell Creativity for Kids, which is now two hundred and I think sixty year old um, luxury writing brand. Um, you know them for pencils and, and and art materials, and also Creativity for Kids, a, a female founded uh, women's craft company. I mean, now you see craft boxes everywhere, but they were really the first. So representing those two companies, helping them execute their creative ideas, be it a product, be it importing a a widget, being, you know, be it trying to get people to understand how they could use these tools to create art. So I had been doing all of that stuff. I, you know, I moved out to the Midwest to do that. I've been doing that for about 15 years, 15 plus years in New Jersey. So I moved to the Midwest to do that. And we had, you know, mutual acquaintance and that's how we met. But so when I met you, I'm I'm a dot connector too um, in getting things done. So, you know, to get things done, right? Say you, and I'm going to try to make an analogy because um, I do have some musical training. I started out playing piano um, and I played violin for, for a while and I begged to stop playing because I just, I just didn't enjoy it. So, when you say you want to you want to you want to have a performance, right? Or you want to play some music. You in your mind know kind of the people that you might want to gather with to make this happen, right? Like you know those people that you want to jam with, you want to get together. And you know kind of what you want to project to your audience or your guests. So you're putting it together. So you're always connecting the dots. You're going, oh, he plays this really well, or he knows how to do this, or I loved when he, do th- he does this. And so you're putting these pieces together. To get things done in the creative world, you're you always connecting dots because people don't have these people on staff. They don't have fixed costs. So you're like, 
okay, to create this widget, well, I know this person, they, they, they do fabulous material development or they, they did a really great project. And so I'm always connected dots just in life. And so when I met you, I said, oh, she's like, she's like this cool musician. And, you know, I met my friend, um, Callie, Cal, of Cal, uh, the brand Cal Ryman, a designer, um, you know, from Cleveland. She, she's now based in New York. But I had just met you both within the frame of like a couple of months. But I said, wow, you know, maybe I could put them together because Cal's clothes really speak to Amy and, you know, her music and the type of music she plays. And I said, maybe there could be an alignment. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of what I do, even with brand licensing. You know, I do a lot of work with aligning a brand, you know, consumer brand, like a Disney with a consumer product, you know, you get that licensing deal and you've got the overlaying of this is what people know Disney for, right? For these characters. And this is what people know this brand for. Let's put them together. And we've got this really powerful, powerful piece. So I'm like a connector, concept builder, relationship builder from a lot of different angles. I want to talk a little bit about what we can do in music to do what you're doing, connecting the dots. And so specifically at this point of um, education in our country uh, surrounding um, the multicultural experience, we're calling it underrepresented composers or Mm -hmm. underrepresented um, peoples that have not fallen in line with the tradition of the, we call them dead white composers, where, you know, usually you're not playing a composer that's alive. And um, the experience for the musician is strictly in a box of what you're supposed to learn, right? Maybe the, 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 all the colors, but not all the colors, right? So we're we're going along and learning. And I wanted to tell you that since, um, since the Black Lives Matter came uh, was painted on the street in Washington. That really was something that affected me to the point that I said, you know, I need to find a curric- a new whole new curriculum. I mm-hmm. need to be educating students now um, in every single genre of color instead of genre of style. Mm-hmm. So I've found some databases of, and there's not a lot, but we're starting to find um, pieces that we can play by underrepresented women, underrepresented composers in general. Um, There's composition competitions out there, Mm. but I'm, I'm super excited to take this conversation into a place where I can get creative with my pedagogy. So I'm turning to you to connect some dots. So, um, I read and I'm I'm rereading this, how to be an anti-racist. And and I have one of the sentences that came up that I want to, a little, a couple sentences that I want to read to you. And I want to talk about it because it's exactly what I'm feeling like, you know, feeling like right now. So um, he says, racist and anti-racist are like peelable name tags that are placed and replaced based on what someone's doing or not doing. Mm-hmm. supporting or expressing in each moment. These are not permanent tattoos. No one becomes a racist or anti-racist. We can only strive to be one or the other. We can unknowingly strive to be a racist. We can knowingly strive to be an anti-racist. Like fighting an addiction, being an anti-racist requires persistent self-awareness, constant self-criticism, 
and regular self-examination. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing that to my mm-hmm. flutes mm-hmm. at such a micro level. So mm-hmm. how can I, um, like fighting an addiction, you know, I have to program Bach, Beethoven, you mm-hmm. know, these staples, but can we train people to have a, a broader view of art? Like, let me take it back to the first black Barbie. That was a big deal. Mm-hmm. People want to run and play those composers that we've always played, but I'm trying to knowingly act as an anti-racist, which would mean complete inclusion. Mm-hmm. When you talk about music, like this is, okay, you know, like you work in your silo, like I'm in my silo of, of what I do and know. But I appreciate you inviting me to this conversation because you answered some questions for me in what you just shared. I thought about um, all the cities who are painting Black Lives Matter on murals, street murals. Um, I was involved in an event yesterday um, with the mayor who started that in D.C. And so I thought about Oh God, you know, who made that decision in her staff? Was it her or who made, who, who encouraged her to do that? Because it was such a, a wave of action across the country, right? Then I thought, um, heck, they just did it in front of Trump Tower. I was thinking about that. And I, go, and I, went, and I went, okay, is this performative, right? Is, is this just like, why are we doing this? And I said, and I saw someone post last night, you know, these new murals look great, but we want to see action. So you just answered my question. You said that the mural in D.C. moved you to think differently about how you could affect your space. So you answered my question. I said, wow, you know, I never thought about it like this. But if, if these actions are pushing all of us to think differently, then that's great. We all, should, we all have to encourage each other to make things actionable. So, so, so you, you reading the book, How to Be Anti-Racist, you then thinking, well, how do I incorporate this into my sphere of influence? So I think I've been, been asked that question a ton, you know, by people in my industry asking me for advice. And the first thing I say, don't ask me because I don't have the answers. I may have answers from my perspective, but um, we're not a monolith. I can't speak for every black person because black men need something different. Black black women need something different. You know, everyone you know in this in this diaspora needs something different. So what I've been encouraging people to do is to build council. You know, build a, a collection of people who can help guide you. And so the questions that you need answered. Well, how can I be intentional with the music I select? Right. Maybe you, you, you'd build a council within your community who understand, they understand what's happening in your space and they can give, like, cause I can give you ideas, but I think it would be more meaningful for someone that's in your space. And then you're empowering them to help you make change. So I just, and I think one of the most important things is we could just give a voice to the voiceless. So, um, we wouldn't be, well, we might be having this conversation, Amy. You and I might be having this conversation um, anytime because we are, we are friends first. But these conversations don't happen because people don't have these friendships, right? Like they, and, and, it, and, and we're not 
comfortable being uncomfortable. You and I can get uncomfortable. You and I are comfortable, so these conversations aren't uncomfortable. But say you want to have this same conversation with your community, just opening up for to dialogue and inviting those people in your network, those those black women, those people of color to to be uncomfortable with you will give you so much more than I can give you, you know, from a perspective of expertise in your space. Um, for me in art, it's, I've been advising everyone to make sure you don't make a decision based on a conversation with one or two people or conversation you might have in a boardroom or in a coffee shop with one other person. Make sure you have a council of black folks helping you craft that direction because then you're, you're building an empathy and authenticity in all your actions. Trayvon Martin, Alton Sterling, Atatiana Jefferson, Botham Jean, Deborah Danner, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Michael Brown, Brianna Taylor, Brendan Glenn, Sandra Bland, Pamela Turner, Samuel DeBose, Corinne Gaines, Freddie Gray, Philando Castile, Terence Crutcher, Eric Garner, Antoine Scott, Terence Coleman, David Joseph, Alfred Olango, Walter Scott, William Chapman II, Jeremy McDowell, Michelle Shirley, Tamir Rice, Kennedy Watkins, Riddell Jones, Alonzo Smith, Akai Gurley, Lamar Clark, Freddie Blue, Azel Ford. It's got to be the dawning. It's got to be an awakening. And it's got to be white people saying, yes, we don't get it. And it's, yeah. we will never get it. So just stop dueling with yourself and embrace and understand. And that's what I can do through music. It's not enough to just play underrepresented composers, though. And you tweet or t- texted or tweeted me, what's Porter Flute going to do? And only you would do that because I do so much. But, but I was like, okay, I got to do something. So, okay, I can't write 
um, black flute lives matter. But so what can I do? <laughs> what, what can I do? Like, I remember people were saying, making fun of black lives matter the first time it happened. Remember yeah. All lives matter. Yeah. And, and this and that. And then somebody this time said, they said, if you were looking at me wanting to hear, I love you. Just tell me I love you. I don't want you to tell me I love everyone and I love this person or that person. I want you just to tell me I love you. Then wouldn't you do it? Mm. You tell mm. the person you love them. So if someone wants you to say, if your friend, black friend says, could you just say black lives matter? Yes, I can. Mm-hmm. I love That's it. great. That's a great way of putting it. And it's, I don't know why there was such a, a reaction to it. When it started to become a phrase in a movement, you know, I don't, I don't know what, I mean, racism, that's the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you're advocating for yourself and you're in an underrepresented group and, and, and you've got folks that don't like it, you know, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter, you know, how much you march or what you represent, you know, there's always going to be counter uh, response. You know, I saw something and it made me think about your, um, what you shared about choosing diverse composers. They, they were talking about the popularity of Hamilton and how Hamilton is changing the face of representation on Broadway, right? It's, it's recognized that, you know, black dollars are, are definitely a viable um, target segment, target consumer, right? And, you know, the popularity of the uh, Black Panther movie kind of um, made it very clear. When that movie was released and and it was such a success, there was no merchandise. There was no product that you can buy. You think about Star Wars. For every Star Wars movie, there's, you can go out and get the action figures, you can go to Wendy's and get the cup, you know, it's everywhere. Well, you know, there was very little, almost nothing for Black Panther. Why? Now, when they offer these licenses to licensees, right, you sign up for, say, you know, the Marvel license, right, and you have access to all the properties that get released, you get first dibs. Companies opt in to the properties in in the the theatrical releases that they think are going to generate dollars. No one signed up for Black Panther. So there was nothing. There were no Halloween costumes. There were no action figures. It was nothing. But guess what? Because people wanted Black Panther stuff. People were, that's when Etsy blew up. People were making stuff and knitting stuff and painting things. And guess what? They shut those people down because they didn't have the license. So, right. So that, I mean, I think that was a laser, laser uh, focus on why um, you want to create pro- black, you know, product for black people because, you know, we're, we're going to buy it. We, we need things for us. And so I think the opportunity to create more um, is there from a perspective of broader distribution. I mean, we've always been making it, but now we have opportunity to make it for brands like Target and Walmart. I mean, they want brown dolls and they want product that has brown skin. So I think it comes from perspective of can we sell it and can we sell a lot of it um so yeah more opportunities to feature a uh, product for black black people for sure so vitamin b20 is a project that that me and 10 of my girlfriends 
um, who some of us some of us have known each other since in utero. Um, we have a, an amazing friendship, and you always hear about women who can't be friends, like these adult women who can't be friends. But we, Amy, we know that that's not true. But so we had been talking about doing something together as a collective. Um, we are all uh, we all are in different industries. We all have uh, different backgrounds, and so COVID hits. And one of our girlfriends had lost her mom and, and everyone had gathered in New York for her memorial. And so we started talking. And a week into COVID, we said, let's do something. So we launched this project, which was a collective and a platform that allowed us to, to be in contact with each other, but also to talk about what the women in our network were doing. And you were actually, I think maybe the second or the third guest, because we knew, and I knew that with COVID, we wouldn't be able to be in social spaces, right? There's no going to a conference. There's no going to a concert. There's no going to happy hour after a conference to meet people. There's no bumping into somebody in the airport lounge because you're not flying. So how do we continue to share our art or our talents or our product? It's this digital theater. It's this thing, right? And so I knew we need to still be visible, still be connected. And so we launched the platform. Each day of the week, a partner featured someone in their network and allowed them to tell their story, feature their business, their talent, whatever it is that they wanted to do. And we've managed to keep it going. We've produced probably over 70 um, segments of content, but um, it was something that we needed to do to help our community because we knew that Everybody was in the same condition in terms of not knowing what this was going to be. You know, our um, businesses and economies were stopped. And so we said, well, we can use our talents to help people. Um, and that's what we did. In my first episode, I called this a renaissance. Yeah, I think it, I think it was. I think you were right. You were right because it gave... Creative, it gave musicians more time to focus on their work. It gave artists the time, it gave us the time that we love, we crave, quiet time, like time that's sometimes hard to get because we're so busy. But now we had tons of time, you know, to create, to make, to practice. So vitamin B20 was, I think, a brilliant idea for Black women in particular. And the fact that you have diverse guests on there means a lot to me. Uh, I felt, like I said, I felt uh, very honored, honored that my voice would be heard. Could you talk, though, and help me with the moment, the most embarrassing moment of the whole interview for me, which was when I was asked about two Black singers or rap artists? <gasps> I turned into my mother and I said, I'm sorry, I don't know who those gentlemen are. And then, hang on, and then I think an older lady who knows how old I am in my 50s, she said, hang on, I've got it. <laughs> Prince or Michael Jackson? And I said, well, every musician knows that at the heart of all musicianship, it's got to be Prince. Your whole, your whole group just burst out laughing and applause and everything. Could you now, Delany, save my butt? Tell me who those people were. Who were who the two people she asked? <laughs> So it's it's kind of the debate that we all, you know, that black folks have, you know, it's it's Biggie or Tupac, Biggie Smalls, who was a rapper from Brooklyn, 
and Tupac Shakur, who was from Baltimore, but he's known for being from the West Coast. Yeah. That was it. Okay. You know their music. You know, you know their music. Hey. Big <laughs> I'm going to send you some. Okay, Delany, big, big ear, Tupac. Oh, you know what? I'm I'm going to say Biggie, you know, all the time. I respected them both, but um, I don't even think I've ever bought any Tupac music. I've bought, I've spent money for for Biggie's, you know, CDs and, and downloads. <laughs> I put my money where my mouth is. Prince or Michael Jackson? Prince. That's that's clear. <laughs> You know, I respect the art. I respect the work and the craft that goes into any creative anything. So Prince all day. Do you know who has my same birth date? Oh, well, I'm trying to think. Beyonce. Well, you you know, so that makes sense because you're you're in September, right? That's September 4th, right? And so I always pay attention because mine's, you know, mine is on the 26th. So yeah, you got, you got a big, you got a big birthday, lady. I love her so much. If I met her, I think I wouldn't be able to talk. Don't get you know, I'm not a Beyonce fan. I like her, but yeah, I know the beehive's going to come for me, but I like her. I don't love her. <laughs> so who would it be? It would be Beyonce or? Oh, I don't think there's an or because she kind of occupies this space by herself. There is no or with her. one point in time entertainers were put in a box you know you think about a a television personality or a vocalist you know a musician this this is what they do but today you know um, consumerism has um, made it possible for for us to be pitch people or we can also license our name or information you know we can do from our base of expertise and knowledge all these other things we can develop, you know, tools to help people learn how to play flute, you know, I mean, just, just, there's so many other things you can do when you start out by saying, you know, I, I like to say I'm in the business of creativity, you know, you're in the business of music. So what are the, like underneath that umbrella, what are the other things, right? What else can you do underneath that umbrella? Cause that's who you love to be, right? You love that. And so I'm, a, I'm an artist, I'm a designer, but under that umbrella, oh my God, I can do all these things and I can do all these things well. I want to have a whole podcast on what are people thinking? Because I truly want to know what, what goes through people's heads when they want to touch. That's what I want to know. It's more so about personal space. And when you are, when you're a black person and this happens to you often, someone violates your personal space to touch your hair, you're going, what is it about me that you don't respect? Why don't you respect my boundaries enough to, to know that you can't just touch my body? You know why? Because we're not thinking about you. We're only thinking about, about I'm only thinking about myself. I'm only thinking that is the coolest hair ever. 
I don't have it. I need to figure out what that's about. And that it's so selfish of me. I have to see it. You see, it's, it's switching my one tunnel vision uh, <laughs> topic siloed view of being a white girl in America to understanding that it's not about me when I'm looking at someone. So what I think we have to do is walk with someone and not look at them like they're not like me. But so that for a perspective, if you needed one, that was Amy's perspective. <laughs> it's like, I want that. I want that hair. I want to touch it. <laughs> yeah. That's such a, that's funny. <laughs> it's such a one way experience. How t- dare I only think one way. What's another thing? What's another thing, Delity? Uh, I always go, I want to see a, a reality show where we get to hear what white people say to each other when the black person leaves the room. Like, that's the show that I want. She's so awesome. No, but, but you are a different type of person. No, I'm not. There's a feeling that, that we have or that I have, because this, this is my wonder, that do, are the conversations different when I'm not in the room? Not, not you and me or, or our friend circle, but are the conversations different for some of the white folks that I, I'm, you know, that are in my, my ecosystem? When I leave the room, is the conversation different? That's what I wonder. If a black woman leaves a room full of white women, I, I don't think anything would change except maybe the, the jargon or the way they kid with each other. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I, I sometimes don't understand. I didn't know Biggie and Tupac. I um have always lived in diverse communities or are, you know, been a part of diverse school system. So I never developed a feeling that I wasn't familiar with people or children or adults from other races. Right. And I, and I, I grew up in the South. So, and I can tell you, I've never experienced overt racism. So I've never been called the N word. I've never, that's never happened to me. But, you know, the things that happened to my counterparts, you know, my black male friends, you know, the getting stopped once a month, the um, having to be fearful of of everything. So that type of stuff doesn't happen to me because I'm a, a woman. I think, I don't know why it doesn't happen to me. I don't know why I, I don't have those same experiences. So well, if I left the room with a bunch of your friends, and you would also say she's awesome when I left, right? I'm going to tell you what happened. I'm going to tell you because this happened. My friend said, how does Delany know that lady? <laughs> That's what happened. Like, but, so the funny, the, the funny thing is my friends, and I realized my friends don't really know me, you know, because I, I said, well, I don't know if they asked the question because they were like, wow, this is a woman that's like, why would, why would she know her? You know, why would she know Amy? And I guess when you think about it, like, what do I have? In, like, I'm not a musician. I'm not from Michigan. So the, the question probably came from, well, how the heck did she meet her? And she's not from Cleveland. I think maybe that is it. But I took it more as, wow, she's awesome. She's talented. You know, how would Delany, because she's not an artist. Like, Delany knows artists, you know, designers. How does she, I think maybe that was it. So that was the conversation. <laughs> like, how does she... How does she know that woman? <laughs> it was cute though, because they were like, "How do you know her?" <laughs> okay, so final scenario: 
what do we really think since you and I are just, you know, with the program, I suppose we could say how, what's happening across America when the white woman leaves the room or the black woman leaves the room. Hopefully that conversation is, is the anti-racist conversation. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, it's not, it's not a conversation. It's, it's okay. You, you might, you might reference something that happened when she was in the room talking, but you're not talking about her background. You're not talking about socioeconomics. You're not really, you're not really talking about that stuff. Exactly. That's the culture we have to teach. I just wonder, like, I always wonder, does the conver- is the conversation different when I'm a black person and I'm there? Like, but that comes from always having to second guess yourself in white spaces, right? That is going, hmm, did my boss say that to me because they don't trust me because I'm black or because they, they can't relate to me or do they have a bias against me? Or is it because I'm a woman or is it because I'm younger than them? So it's all these things. You walk around mental gymnastics for everything surrounding race and um, gender and, and sometimes sexuality. Like it's, it's, you just don't freaking know, you know, it's just like, it's, it's so hard. And I was thinking the other day and I, I said, wow, does this whole work from home culture movement thing does that make not having to go into the office? We don't have the terror and angst and anxiety of having to be in spaces with these people. I just thought about that and I said, that's wonderful. And do what we can in our spaces, which that's what you're doing. And that's what, I, you know, what I'm doing. We, we can't shape policy. I mean, we could if we we're that active, but we're, we're shaping policy for our own ecosystems. And that's what I, I just say, if we all, like I asked you, well, what are you going to do? I've asked everybody, everybody, white friends, black friends, Latinx friends, what are you going to do? Don't just drop a hashtag and a, and a, a white text on a black background. What are you going to do? Like, what are you going to do? Absolutely. It's, yeah. It's not enough to not be a racist. You have to right. be an anti-racist. Yeah. Yeah. Hold people accountable. Hold the folks that are in your network that are a little racist, hold them accountable. Yeah. So we've been quoting a book by Ibram Kendi called How to Be an Anti-Racist. I love this book. It's the book that I started with um, in my journey. And I I really encourage everyone to, to start reading. Don't just watch. Don't get on social media for your racism information because it will be tinted and tainted for lack of a better word. (laughs) Well, Delany, thank you for being my friend. Thank you, Amy. I miss you. I wish I could come and visit. I know. Well, you can, but not just right now. We'll do it from from afar. (laughs) Conversation. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you for having me. I've been quoting from a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. He has called the mood in the United States during the protests to the New York Times, quote, a signature, significant, distinct moment of people striving to be anti-racist, end quote. I think we should take Delany's advice and go find some friends, not just one or two people, but friends that we can have true discussions with so that we can move forward and look ahead 
and have different relationships with people. I appreciate you joining me in the podcast today. On Facebook, I'm Amy Porter Flutist. On Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, I'm Porter Flute. And I'm so grateful for you.